Okay, our scripture reading today is from Revelation 6, 1 through 8. This is found on page uh, 1031 in your pew Bible. If you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to take one home, so feel free to do so. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth, so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand, and I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given the authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So. Well, good morning. Uh, welcome again to the Brookside Campus of Christ Community. Uh, my name's Taylor. I'm one of the, the pastors here, and it's my joy to lead us now into a time of teaching. Um, and if this is your first time here this morning, we're especially glad that you're with us. Uh, we know uh, the courage that it takes to walk through the doors of a church for the first time, so thank you for taking that step uh, and, and trusting us. Uh, but before we, we, we get into a time of teaching, would you, would you pray with me? Father God, I am uh, reminded this morning how desperately I need you, how desperately I need your spirit um, to communicate your word faithfully, to understand your word, how desperately we need your spirit to be bonded together in unity and love, and to hear these words that were spoken so long ago with so many symbols that are foreign to us in ways that, that encourage and speak into our lives today. We desperately need you this morning, God. Would you meet us in this place? Would you move among your people? And would you open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to understand your word and to take that with us into our weeks? We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, and by the power of his spirit. Amen. Well, you may remember uh, Palm Sunday in April of 2017. Twin suicide bombings took place at, at St. George's Church and at, at St. Mark's Coptic Orthodox Cathedral in, in Alexandria in, in Egypt. Christians were the target of these attacks, and at least 45 people were killed, with 126 injured. You may remember June 17th of 2015. In Charleston, South Carolina, where nine African-American Christians were gunned down during a Bible study at the Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church by white supremacist Dylan Roof. You may remember our friend Gitachu, who leads our global outreach partner, the 11th Hour Network in Kenya, 
And on May 19th, 2019, he, he sent us this urgent update, which I believe Bill has shared in a sermon before, where he said that the severe persecution broke out in our northern Kenya mother church, and hundreds of youth ran to the church with the attempt to bring the church down and burn it to the ground. The three days of conflicts resulted in five churches being destroyed, one of them being Evangelical Victory Church, with which Pastor Bill and others have visited. Then they started running into Christian business places and their homes attacking them and, and breaking their business places, looting and burning their cars, he says. Many Christians were, were injured with major and minor wounds. Over 70 were put to jail and the government shut down the church for security reasons. And these are just a few of the countless stories of, of persecution threatening the church over the past 2,000 years. There's just a few examples of, of the sadness the deep sadness that Christians have faced ever since Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father. And in light of those stories and others that might lead some of us to wonder, how has the church even made it this far? Add on top of that the, the sadness that we all face that, that's common to, to all of human existence, right? The, the lingering ache of, of long-term sickness, the, the heartache when those close to us die, uh, the pain of divorce or, or broken relationships, uh, the desperation of struggles with fertility, and more. And just to make things worse, injustices surround us every day, right? The hunger facing those who are homeless or impoverished, uh, the needless killing of, of the unborn, the agony of murder and hatred toward people of different ethnicities. Now, I'm not like, like saying all these things just to be a super bummer this morning. Uh, sorry if, if that's how you're feeling. Like, hey, Taylor, come on. Uh, this is church. Uh, but I'm just saying that to lean in a little bit to, to the sadness and, and, and suffering that has faced Christians for so many years and human beings at that. This is our fourth sermon in a series on the book of Revelation. And so far we've learned that, that Revelation ultimately more than anything else is a revealing. That's what the word apocalypsis, where we get apocalypse means, is it's a revealing. And ultimately what's it's, it's revealing is Jesus. As the person of Jesus, who he is and, and how he's dealing with the wrongs in the world and will deal with the wrongs in the world. So, so we're calling this series, then, Everything Sad, Untrue, taking our cue from, from the Lord of the Rings, uh, because Revelation is really a promise to the church, uh, uh, ch many churches that were facing intense persecution, a promise to them that Jesus will make everything sad, untrue. But the question for us today, and for the churches who received Revelation, remained this. Like, that's great that it will come untrue, but, but what do we do when suffering lingers? In other words, how do we endure the sadness? How do we endure the sadness until it's made untrue? And this morning, as we look at, at Revelation chapters 6, 7, and 8, uh, we're taking a big chunk out of it this week, we're, we're going to see three ways that God relates to us in the middle of the sadness and as a result of that, three ways that we're able to endure the sadness with his help. But before we, we go there, I, I just want to give us a warning, and I want to give us a promise. Uh, so first, the warning. Uh, the sermon today is difficult. We, we're dealing with difficult concepts. We're working with symbols that are, that are hard to grasp. Uh, we're discussing realities that can be tough for many of us in the West, especially to, to stomach. And you will probably either leave today bored or exhausted, and maybe both, let's be honest, right? That's the warning. But the promise, the promise is if we are able 
to embrace the difficulties of this rich text in Revelation, if we're able to hear it with the ears of the first century church that received it, it will give us the encouragement and the strength that we need to endure whatever sadness is staring us down with joy and with hope. That's the promise. So I've warned you, just given you fair warning about what's coming, but there is a promise there. So before we get into it, uh, to catch us up, last week you remember that Pastor Bill uh, walked us through Revelation chapters 4 and 5, and and in those chapters we see, uh, John sees rather, heaven just kind of break out in this worship, this, this surround sound worship of Jesus, the slain lamb. And the reason for this worship, Pastor Bill taught us, is that, that he's the only one who's worthy to open the scroll. Now, Pastor Bill also showed us that the scroll uh, contains, in essence, uh, God's plan for dealing with evil, with the sadness, and and rescuing his people. Uh, The scroll contains, essentially, God's plan to to unite heaven and earth, to bring them together in in a beautiful harmony. And basically, the remainder of Revelation visualizes the unfolding of this plan. And an important aspect of this plan, as we'll see, is God's judgment on sin in response to sin. Uh, and, and those are, are envisioned through a three, series of three sevens. So if you, get, if you read Revelation in this section, you'll see three kind of groups of seven things. There are seven seals, uh, which seal up that scroll. Uh, there are seven trumpets, and there are seven bowls. Uh, now, each of these sevens, as you go through them, essentially reveals some sort of new destruction or, or decree. Uh, so, so when each, each seal is opened on the scroll, a new kind of disaster or vision is revealed. When each, each trumpet is blown, uh, a new series of judgments takes place. And when each, when each bowl, bowl is poured out, a different manifestation of God's wrath against sin uh, is poured out. That's kind of how the, the flow of the next few chapters works. And as they go, uh, these these judgments uh, and the destruction is intensified the more that you go from seals to trumpets to bulls. Uh, So every time that the seventh seal is opened, uh, the the seventh one actually ushers in the next seven. Now that's hard to wrap our minds around, but it's like the seventh one happens and that seventh one kind of prepares us for and encompasses the next seven. So the seventh seal has the seven trumpets in it and the seventh trumpet has the seven bulls in it. It's sort of like those, uh, those Russian nesting dolls, right? Where we're like, they're, they're all one doll, but you like open it up and there's another one inside. And, but instead of getting littler, uh, it's kind of getting bigger. It's intensifying more. That's, that's what's happening here. Now, now, you don't have to remember how all of that works or try to keep track of all of that. But what I want us to understand right now is this, is that the next several chapters of Revelation are, are, are doing this pattern of intensifying. It might be better to think of it kind of like a theme of music uh, that returns to the same theme. So like in Lord of the Rings, right, you're watching, you, you should know by now that I love Lord of the Rings. I uh, use it all the time. Uh, in Lord of the Rings, like the, in the Fellowship of the Ring, you, for the first time you hear kind of that dun 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 and you're like, oh, that's nice. And then you get to, to the two towers, and maybe it's the middle of a battle, and they, they do it kind of differently, but it's the same thing, but maybe it's in a minor key, and you're like, ooh, that's, that's different, like something's happening here. And then you get to the end of the Return of the King, and it like bursts out like, dun 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 you're like, yes, let's go. And it just keeps going. The more it goes, builds on itself and intensifies. That's kind of what's happening here. And today we're looking at chapters 6, 7, and 8, which, which only contain the actual opening of the seven seals that are on the scroll. Uh, so, we're, so we're looking at the seals this morning. And chapter 6 begins, you, you heard in the scripture reading, uh, with the lamb opening these seals. 
And what we heard read in the scripture reading was just the opening of the first four out of seven seals. Uh, And you may have noticed it wasn't like a super happy, cheery passage. Because each of the first four seals describes the sending of the infamous four horsemen of the apocalypse. And essentially what these horsemen represent is, is kind of all the worst things for humanity. So think of something awful for humanity that could happen, and the horseman represents that. It's some combination, it appears, of, of like war and plagues and famine and death. So not awesome things. And one of our, our other pastors found this picture this week, and I just thought it was too good not to share. Um, yeah, like, not, not your grandma's My Little Ponies, right? Now, now this image, not, not that image, but, but the image that John is painting here, uh, it would have hit home to the churches that received Revelation, the churches John was writing to. Because this kind of stuff, the war, famine, plague, death thing, that surrounded them every day in, in, under Roman rule. And it's the kind of stuff that's continued in cycles throughout human history, hasn't it? And these horsemen, in in addition to talking about that, are also anticipating a future more awful judgment that looks a lot like war, plagues, famine, and death. Now, one thing that can be challenging about this picture of suffering is this, and you see it here in Revelation 6, that the church isn't exempt from the effects of evil. God's people are not exempt from experiencing the suffering that comes from evil. In Revelation 6, the horsemen are let loose on the world and God's people suffer for it. One of the things that that we learn from from this section of Revelation is this, that, that God allows his people to suffer. He allows his people to suffer. And this becomes clear when, when we read the fifth seal, which, which jumps back up from, from the horsemen being like let loose on earth to, to back up to heaven. And just read with me, starting in, in verse 9. It says, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar of the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed just as they themselves had been. So here John sees with the fifth seal martyrs, those who have been killed for their faith, crying out and asking God, what's taking so long? Have you ever prayed that prayer? What's taking so long? God, come and end the sadness. Judge the world. Take revenge for the suffering we have experienced. And these martyrs are are a prime example of the fact that these sealed judgments don't just cause suffering for evil people or people who have rejected God, but for all people, including the church. Everyone must deal with the sadness that results from sin. That's clear. And includes those who are suffering in the church on account of their faith, like the many examples that we named earlier. And God's response to them might make it even harder yet. Because he says, wait, wait a little bit longer. There is still more suffering and death in store for his people. And if this is true, that God allows his people to suffer these things and to follow this this cruciform way of Jesus, then, then how are we to endure the sadness until he makes it untrue? 
Well, one way we can do this that we see here with the martyrs is that we endure the sadness by learning to lament. We endure the sadness by learning to lament. Lament is just the biblical way of bringing our pain and frustration before God. That's, that's all lament is. And we see an example of it here when the, when the martyrs ask, how long? If you've ever prayed that prayer of what's taking so long, that's a lament. And when we learn to lament, what we do is we become comfortable expressing our anguish and grief to the God who cares. That's, that's what, we, what happens to us when we lament. The God who, who responds here to the martyrs by, by comforting them and drawing near to them even as he tells them to wait. Here's how, how pastor and author Mark Vrogot puts it. I love this. He says, says, to cry is human, but to lament is Christian. That's really good. Lament is the honest cry of a hurting heart wrestling with the paradox of pain and the promise of God's goodness. And that's exactly what's the tension that's going on here, right? The paradox of pain and the promise of God's goodness. And here's why I think lament is so important to learn. Because our tendency when facing suffering in the West is to do one of two things. We either ignore it, or we use it as an excuse to turn from God. We we either pretend it isn't there, or, or we take it as a sign of God's abandonment of us, and we turn away from him. And what that ends up doing is that feeds exactly into the plans of our enemy. Uh, One scholar said that the four horsemen are how Satan attempts to conquer the saints through suffering so that they will lose their faith and turn away from God. But friends, lament refuses to pretend that the sadness isn't there. Lament chooses to name the evil and to take it to God, sometimes in tears, sometimes in frustration, but always in faith. That's what lament is. So this week, I want to challenge you to find 15 minutes uh, in your week to just sit and and take out a pen and paper. When you have out that pen and paper, think of something, take a few minutes to think of something that has brought you pain recently. An example of the burden of sadness that you're carrying right now. And then once you've thought of that, use the pen and paper to write a lament to God following this pattern that's, that's up on the screen. Uh, and this comes from the same pastor of that quote earlier. First, turn to God. Start your prayer by, by affirming that you are going to God, maybe naming a few th- ways you've experienced him or things you know about him. Turn to God. And then after you've turned to him, bring your complaint. What's frustrating you? What has you angry? What has you sad and burdened? Bring your complaint, name it to God, and be honest and raw with it. And then third, ask boldly. Ask boldly. Ask boldly for God to intervene and do something about it. Maybe it's ending a sickness. Maybe it's bringing a relationship back together. Maybe you just need his presence to comfort you in, in, the, in, the, in light of a loss or something like that. But ask boldly for whatever it is you need. And then finally, uh, choose to trust. Tell God that you trust him. That's a really important part of lament is that you bring your complaint, but, but affirm to God that you trust him to do something with it. Take 15 minutes and do that exercise this week, because if we are going to endure the sadness, we have to learn how to lament in the midst of our grief. We have to learn. So chapter 6 ends uh, with the opening of the sixth seal, which we haven't talked about yet, and we'll just skip over briefly, because it it comes in cosmic proportions. There are earthquakes, stars falling, the splitting of the sky, uh, the moving of mountains and islands, big stuff's happening. And all this is just a preparation for for the final judgment, which John calls the wrath of the Lamb. And with all this destruction going on, the chapter ends with a really important and strong question, and that's this, it's who can stand? If all of this is happening, who can withstand it? 
But as soon as we turn to chapter 7, we see that there are, in fact, those who are able to withstand the judgment of God. And would you read with me, starting in verse 1? It says, After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, with no wind, that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he had called out with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, do not harm the earth or sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So John sees uh, winds of judgment basically being held back, uh, and they're being held back for a time until the servants of God can be sealed and protected. And these sealed, as you keep reading, end up being described in two ways. First, John hears about it, and what he hears about is 144,000 people of God. Uh, and those 144,000 are, are likely symbolic uh, of, and representing the people of Israel, the complete people of Israel. And then, then John hears that, and then he turns and looks. Here's 144,000, turns and looks. And there's a countless multitude, countless multitude from every tribe and tongue and nation and it's probable that these 144,000 and the countless multitude are likely the same people, the complete and multi-ethnic and immeasurable people of God. That's who he sees here. Now, here's what this means, that even though God allows his people to suffer, God protects his people through judgment. God protects his people through judgment. Christians are affected by the ramifications of evil and judgment, but they are not the object of God's wrath. Hear that well. They are not the object of God's wrath. God's wrath is poured out on sin, and the slain lamb absorbed that wrath on the cross on behalf of his people. That's the truth if you are in Christ. If you are on the side of the slaughtered lamb, you are not in the way of his wrath because God protects his people through judgment. Now, just to be clear, what this doesn't mean uh, is that, that we will not be judged. The writers of Scripture are very clear that everyone goes through judgment. Both unbelievers and believers will be subject to the judgment of God. It also doesn't mean that we will be protected, uh, as we've already said, from experiencing suffering and evil. As it appears, some Christians will die as a result of the horsemen, right? So that can't be what it means. So what does it mean to be protected? I think it's pretty clear that it means that God protects them spiritually. They will not fall away from him. God will keep them. They will, they will make it through the judgment. They'll go through it, but they'll make it through it because they bear the name of Jesus. So how then do we endure the sadness? Now, we endure the sadness not only by learning to lament, but by daring to hope. By daring to hope. Now, now, when we talk about hope today, uh, we usually mean something more to the effect of wishful thinking, right? Like, if you hope something's going to happen, like, I really wish it would happen. It's kind of like a snow day, right? You always hoped for snow days when you were a kid, didn't you? Uh, but, but where I come from, they never happened. It didn't matter what, what it looked like, we hardly ever got a snow day. Uh, we even, when I was in college, gathered together like 60 college students and shoveled snow up against the doors to our classrooms and like took the snow, put it on the, the handles and poured water on it so that it would freeze together. Uh, so if any of you are looking for great ideas, uh, that might probably not be one. Uh, but we did it. And that still didn't even work. People just got up early and removed it and we still had to have class. <laughs> didn't work. That's kind of how we think about hope, though, is like, I wish that we would have a snow day, but usually I don't. But when we talk about hope as Christians, we mean something different. The biblical idea of hope goes something more like this. 
that hope is the confident expectation in a future reality that we lean into to give us energy to live today. Hope is a confident expectation in a future reality that we lean into to give us energy to live today. It's a future outcome that we're so assured will happen that we can draw on its anticipation for the energy and strength to live now. In other words, when we expect, or what we expect, impacts how we live now. So it's more like a vacation than a snow day, right? You usually have your vacation on the calendar. Um, Ashton and I just got to go on a, a vacation to Colorado recently, and it was, it was incredible. Uh, but in the weeks coming up to a vacation that you know is coming, uh, knowing the vacation's coming impacts how you live and work, doesn't it? You start preparing and packing for things. You start planning out what you're going to do there. And for me, it makes me work harder because I want all that work done so I don't even have to think about it or worry about it when I'm on vacation. That's what hope is. It's a future reality that gives you strength and energy today. So friends, even though we face suffering, hear this, that we are not abandoned to it. We are not abandoned to it. Even though we are stung by the pain of evil, we are not alone in it. Even when it seems like the sadness is winning, the one who unravels sadness guarantees our future. Amen? Yeah, that's kind of good. Amen. Yeah. Amen. Those who suffer with him will conquer with him. That's the truth of Revelation. And while not getting rid of the difficult parts to grasp here, this does put a whole new spin on the seals, doesn't it? <laughs> like no matter the suffering, no matter the evil, no matter the sadness you encounter in this world, Jesus has sealed you. The evil is ruled by Jesus and so are you. Now, the sealing of the church doesn't only guarantee that we will overcome in the future. It also claims that God will come and address our own personal sadnesses. Listen to this beautiful ending of what John hears in verse 15. They cry out, Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither shall they thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb is in the midst of the throne, will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And get this, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is a foretaste of the new creation, that the promise that's coming that God will visit us, he will heal us, he will comfort us, he will satisfy us, and he will dwell with us forever. And friends, I don't know about you, but that's the daring hope that I need to endure the sadness now. Are we, are we good? So the first six seals have been opened, and, and God's people have been sealed. So now it's time for the seventh seal to be opened, and something remarkable happens. Let's read chapter 8, starting in verse 1. When the, Sam, the lamb, when, his name's not Sam, when the lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the angels, seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. This is crazy when you think about it. There's been all of this unceasing worship and speaking and movement all the way throughout Revelation, right? And then all of a sudden, everybody stops. It's dead silent. The four creatures with all the eyes are silent. The angels are silent. The martyrs are silent. God is silent. Why? I think there are two reasons. And the first we see here in verse 1, that the angels are given seven trumpets. And as we said earlier, these trumpets are intensifying the, the judgment and suffering that we've already seen with the seals. Uh, so there's silence because there's about to be judgment. 
Uh, In the Hebrew Bible, silence almost always precedes God's judgment. So the silence is a sign that he is about to pronounce his final definitive word on evil in the universe. So everyone is silent. But there's still another reason for the silence. Let's read on in in verse 2. Read with me. Then I saw, or no, I already read that. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. The other reason that there is silence is to listen for and receive the prayers of God's people. Here we see all of the prayers of the saints, God's people released, burning like incense, rising up to God. And God listens in silence. And then he acts. That's the last thing we learn about how God relates to us in sadness. That God moves when his people cry out. God moves when his people cry out. God takes the prayers of the saints that are demanding justice, that are demanding that that God deal with evil, that are interceding on behalf of others in the church and the world, and he listens to them silently for 30 minutes, and he throws them back to earth. I love the way that that one of my favorite authors, Eugene Peterson, describes this. He said, The prayers which had ascended, unremarked by the journalists of the day, returned with immense force. In George Herbert's phrase, as reversed thunder. And listen to this prayer recenters history with incalculable effects, and our earth is daily shaken by it. Friends, the prayers of the people move forward the action and judgment of God. Our cries for the sadness to end move God to act, move God to break in and end the sadness. God moves, believe it, when his people cry out to him. Which means that we endure the sadness by contending in prayer. We endure the sadness by contending in prayer. I personally think that one of the greatest tragedies of the time we live in is that prayer is dismissed pretty quickly in response to evil. And yes, I believe that action is important and that prayer should not be a cop-out from also taking action when action is possible, but it is still true that prayer is our greatest weapon against evil. It's the way that we invoke the intervening presence and power of God, isn't it? It's the way that we draw near to God like the martyrs when we cry out, how long? We endure the sadness by contending in prayer. And here's what it means to, to contend in prayer. That we let the intensity of our desire to see God's kingdom come, to see renewal and revival in our world, to see the sadness dealt with, we let the intensity of that desire to compel us to petition God unceasingly with urgency and boldness. We're contending with God, asking him to move. And one of the the most important ways that we do this is through a kind of prayer that's called intercession. You might have heard uh, the word intercession or prayers that intercede for someone else. And intercession is just asking God to step in and act on behalf of of another person or another group or or a problem or, or issue. And one of my favorite examples of someone who embodies this so well in history is a man named Reese Howells. And Reese Howells was a coal miner. Uh, He was a missionary who lived during the global crisis of World War II. 
Uh, and, and like, is there hardly a moment that reveals sadness and suffering? Like literally every horseman plague is present uh, in an evil regime like the reign of Hitler. And his desire, he repeated over and over, was this. I want to know that the Holy Spirit is stronger than the devil in the Nazi system. Hmm. I want to know that the Holy Spirit is stronger than the devil in the Nazi system. And the way that he sought this reality was through prayer. One person wrote that, that Reese Howells shook the world from his knees. What strong, amazing language. Others said that if Reese Howells was praying for you, you'd better get ready because he was going to hound heaven until God did it. Remarkable prayer. In the face of evil, he made his life about interceding for others and contending with God in prayer for what he wanted. And in the book, Reese Howell's Intercessor, the author gives some of his reflections on how we can pray in this way. And I think this is so insightful. He says there are two important first steps to intercession or to contending in prayer. There's identification and agony. Identification and agony. Now, what does that mean? It means that we have to identify so well with the people we're praying for that it brings us to the point of agony on their behalf. In other words, we need to be moved to a place where we are burdened by the needs of others where the pain of others and the injustice faced by others becomes just as pressing for us as our own personal pain. So for example, we, we identify with those who are maligned because of their race and our heart breaks for them and our agony leads us to contend with them or for them in prayer. We identify with those who are victims of sex crimes and our hearts break for them and our agony leads us to contend for them in prayer. We identify so much with Christians who face severe persecution around the globe, knowing that our suffering for the gospel doesn't even compare, and our heart breaks for them, and our agony leads us to contend for them in prayer. We identify so much with those who are lost and don't know Jesus, and our heart yearns for God's presence to break into a dark world, and our agony leads us to contend for renewal and revival in prayer. That's what intercession and contending in prayer looks like. And we are strengthened by the reality revealed in Revelation that when we cry out, don't forget this, that God hears, God listens, God acts, and moves to end the sadness, to judge evil, and to vindicate his people. So uh, take another 15 minutes this week, so I'm asking for a half an hour of your week in addition to your lament. Take 15 minutes to reflect and ask God, who is he calling you to intercede for, to contend for in prayer? What sadness is, asking, is God asking you to petition him to end? Uh, maybe you just need to take some time asking God what I've asked a lot recently, to, to burden my heart with a friend or a people group or a church to pray for. Maybe that means you commit for praying regularly for, for the 11th Hour Network, our global partner in Kenya. But whoever comes to mind, find 15 minutes this week to seek God in intercession on behalf of that person or, or group. Ask him to break your heart for what breaks his heart to burden you with the vision of his kingdom that is so much stronger than any other vision or any other kingdom. Because friends, prayer may look like foolishness to the powerful, but those who know suffering well because they love their Savior well know prayer perfectly well. We endure the sadness by contending in prayer. Because God does allow his people to suffer, but he protects them through judgment and moves when they cry out. And friends, the Lamb is coming to make everything sad and true. And if we can learn to lament, if we can contend in prayer, if we can dare to hope, we will have what it needs, we need to endure until that day comes. Amen? Let's pray.
God, these are tough ideas. When we really tap into the sadness, we realize how much we need you. When we really tap into to the issues that we're facing, we know that, that we cannot endure this without your help. Thank you for sealing us and protecting us, for making the promise that your goodness will ultimately prevail, that you will make everything sad and true and unravel the sadness. And God, in the meantime, we just pray that your kingdom would come, that it would come now. It would come in our lives for anything that we are going through, the sadness that we are facing. God, bring renewal, bring revival in our world, Lord. Would your presence pervade this earth? We ask for it, we hope in it, we trust that it will happen. And God, in the meantime, would you draw near to us like the martyrs in the fifth seal comforting us as you tell us to wait. Help us to grapple with these these hard truths through the coming weeks and to live out of the reality that we are sealed and protected and that you move and listen when we pray. Pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, by the power of his spirit. Amen.